Welcome to On Air, a podcast from the Air community. The community organizes and coordinates researchers studying all aspects of B and T cell receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. For more information, please go to antibodysociety.org. This podcast has a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. We will look at how repertoires are currently used in the clinic and also discuss different opportunities where repertoires can be a great addition, the reasons why we are just not quite there yet and how to overcome the obstacles. We are happy that you joined us for this episode of On Air. Welcome to the ninth episode of On Air, the podcast of the Air community with special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. Today with us, we have Vadim Nasarov, co-founder and CEO of the startup Immunomind. Hello, Vadim. Hello. I am Ulrich Stavbo. And I'm Cheng Ding. Hello, everybody, and welcome. So, Vadim. Usually we like to get to know our guests a little better by understanding their background, specifically their journey on how they got to where they are, um, especially for yourself, right? You have this kind of alternative path as a scientist, um, and then also bringing it back to our AIR podcast, which is what brought you um, to work on the adaptive immune repertoire field and what excites you about it? Thank you. Right. So my background is a mix between computer science and computer engineering. And uh, I worked on uh, optimizing algorithms and machine learning and developing machine learning uh, algorithms. Uh, uh, I worked at uh, the network of laboratories uh, led by Dr. Dmitry Chudakov. Uh, and I was a bioinformatician and later a senior uh, bioinformatician uh, there. I was uh, leading projects on the intersection between computational uh, immunology, adaptive immunity research, and uh, machine learning. Uh, I, um, I, um, I really liked the idea of, well, as a machine learning guy, I really liked the idea of uh, adaptive immunity as a learning system. And uh, I have my personal reasons uh, going in um, immunology and working on something uh, uh, that is pot potentially has an amazing practical uh, applications. Uh, this is very personal for me because uh, my relatives uh, and I were and is, uh, let's say, affected by cancer and autoimmune diseases. And my path started with the analysis uh, of the immune repertoire data for ankylosing spondylitis, also known as Bacteria's uh, disease. Uh, some of the some of immune, immune repertoire researchers uh, know me by uh, open source package uh, TCR. Uh, I was the main developer of, of it, uh, and I was a co-author of uh, VDJ, VDJ, VDJ tools uh, instrument. And um, later, I became a some sort of a team lead for ImmuneArc uh, that is a successor to TCR. Oh, again, uh, it's open source, um, open source air package for data analysis of uh, immunity data. And um, my, my drive to do something uh, practical from uh, immune repertoire, from immune repertoire data, uh, had driven me 
to, uh, to gather my own small research uh, group focused on using machine learning in immune, immune uh, repertoires. Uh, so, for example, we created a, a machine learning model for classification for CD, uh, CD4, CD8 classification of TCRs using uh, CDR3 and VJ uh, sequences. I think it was many years ago, maybe around 2016 or something like that. I think the machine learning only started um, to become a very interesting topic in the new repertoire space back then. Uh, and after that, I took a little bit of um, uh, hiatus or from uh, from science to recharge, to to think through uh, what I wanted to do. And um, I was invited uh, to a position of uh, director of AI and a co-founder to a Canadian startup focused on um, infrastructure for machine learning experiments. And uh, after this startup, uh, with my friends of, uh, I think, 13 or 14 years, uh, I usually call it a marriage uh, spending third of our lives, uh, we, started, uh, we started Immunomind with the idea of using AI to develop uh, immunotherapies for cancer and autoimmune diseases. So machine learning is, is what has what is tying all of these things together for you, coming from a strictly computational background into uh, the field of biology and immunology, as I hear. Um, of course, it's immune repertoires too, right? Uh, so uh, consider me a person on the intersection between um, adaptive immunity, machine learning, and um, business side of things, because thanks to my work at uh, this uh, AI infrastructure uh, startup, I learned more about the business side of things. And to be completely honest, I was, and I'm still very inspired by the business side of things, and that you can combine science and business to do uh, something practical in the medical sense, right? So yeah, it's it's everything. And in addition to that, uh, in my mind, we also found an amazing, uh, amazing opportunity in single cell. So uh, we are working on the intersection, uh, immune repertoire research and single cell transcriptomics, site sec, and so on data. I have to admit, I'm, I'm kind of naive to Immunomind. So can you kind of give a background or an overview of, of what it is and, and what is the problem it's aiming to solve? Sure. So uh, we are focusing on uh, uh, developing more persistent cell therapies for cancer and autoimmune diseases. And persistence of cells is the, currently is the biggest challenge in, uh, in cell therapies in uh, blood cancers, in uh, solid tumors and autoimmune diseases uh, as well. Cells simply don't survive enough to kill the tumor or to realize their, uh, their potential. And uh, what we do, we, uh, we have a proprietary database of immune cells. We have our algorithms leveraging uh, multi-omics data, immune repertoires, transcriptomics, sidesec, and so on, to, uh, to develop more persistent cell therapies, to find new targets for these therapies, to, de to develop leads, more persistent leads for, the, for found targets, and so on, uh, going uh, by the st steps in the drug development pipeline. So in short, in short, uh, you can think about this as an uh, AI-driven AI uh, cell therapy company. Uh, is this more of a kind of a 
a curated phenotype of a, of a cell in a specific disease that you're trying to maintain. I guess I'm, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around is, is how are you defining this persistent characteristic? Right. Uh, yes. Uh, it's more, it's a curated, well, it, it is a curated phenotype because this persistence in reality, it, it linked, it, uh, it linked to many different um, properties of cells, right? To different phenotypes of cells. And uh, you need to precisely calibrate your cell product uh, to have um, the best combination of cell types to don't have to uh, well yeah, to have the best combination of cell types uh, cell types there and um, you see the problem here because cell products are very complex products those are biologics so you not you not only need to develop it first in a very you know a careful manner right on later stages for example in manufacturing you also need to carefully monitor um, the composition of your cell product right so there are a lot of you know um, there, there there is no uh, one large task that uh, that is need, needed to be solved the, the this is a combination of smaller tasks because the cell therapies because cell therapies treatment or biologics they are different than um, small molecules do you develop these therapies in-house or, or do you provide the service for other people to develop? So with service, I mean, what to go for? It's both, uh, but our overall goal is to, of course, uh, go towards uh, aging, well, towards uh, developing cell, uh, only developing cell therapies. Because that's the, well, that's the reason uh, I and my co-founder started this company, right? And this is our, well, over edge, overarching goal, and it is the same. It is the same model as with other AI for drug discovery or AI for drug development companies. They start as a, this hybrid uh, service company slash um, drug development with uh, universities, and later they build their own R and D facilities and they move. Uh, they acquire more and more data through um, the service model and through collaborations, and they uh, they uh, became these you know well, drug development companies with a uh, extremely large database of uh, of patient patient data and some very interesting AI technologies. The database you need to do all this this AI. Um, where do you get the data? For, for this, for the beginning? So, uh, well, usually there are two parts, uh, public data, and you can do something with this public data or you can well, leave it be, right? And just compile mm, together. And um, you can acquire data from partnerships, from partnerships, from collaborations, from uh, alliances. Uh, we do both. Uh, we, we do both and we did both. Because it's very important to have a proprietary uh, unique data uh, that is only you have an access to uh, from the business standpoint. What are some of the major challenges that you face uh, trying to realize ImmunoMind's goals and vision? Well, uh, there are typical risks for startups, right? And I'm not sure if I can figure out something new <laughs> uh, here. Um, it's, um, I think, one of the most 
interesting things here. Well, challenging and interesting is, of course, the transformation from a scientist, from a uh, bioinformatician who is doing immune repertoire data analysis and develops and developing packages, right, to a um, uh, CEO of company that needs to um, uh, hire new people. So, okay, if you need to hire people, you need to build a framework for hiring, right? Uh, you need to do sales, you need to build a framework for sales, and so on with fundraising um, and so on. So this change in, um, uh, not only in activities, but all, also in the mentality that you need to be productive, you need to be productive, you need to be efficient, and, um, and you need to, uh, and sadly, you need to sacrifice the uh, contemplating the beauty of the science here, uh, because you need to get to results, right? And uh, you need to get to uh, minim minimal, minimally sensible results that you can demonstrate to stakeholders, you can demonstrate to customers. Uh, and and so on. And I think it it is it was and well it is still one of the uh, biggest challenges uh, biggest challenges for me. Well, uh, another thing uh, that is I feel like sometimes overlooked uh, is uh, is uh, the management uh, skills. That when you go from uh, from managing uh, zero people to one, and when you go from man uh, from managing one uh, one person to uh, well, fifteen or to twenty. Uh, it's really it, it it feels like those are some leaps um, uh, or some gaps uh, that you really need to put your mind to um, to think through to overcome and not to not not just to you know let it go because if you want to be a good manager and good leader. You really need to reflect a lot of on things and um, and understand limitations of your mentality and previous culture, because now you have a responsibility for 10, 15, 20 people, and well, you need to be uh, effective, uh, efficient, and productive. Okay, so it sounds like a ever evolving list of challenges that are never. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's um, uh, some real story or 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 or, or a joke, but uh, there is. Well, let's let's call it a saying that you shouldn't uh, ask an entrepreneur about uh, how things uh, are going because because they always respond that everything is bad, right? <laughs> uh, and yes, everything is always bad but it but it doesn't mean there is there there are no exciting or exciting parts right it's just because you always work on overcoming some challenges what about uh the technical challenges with um sort of this immune repertoire and uh phenotyping and characteriz characterization with it being more um accepted or used for applications in pharma or for therapeutic benefits? Well, uh, the, um, the challenge that is always there, right? It, it is, uh, of course, the quality of the data. And 
um, the question is uh, that I think this is the key question in any uh, AI app application there, right? So how do you make sure that your the quality of your data is um, is good um, is good enough for algorithms or for any you know um, data insights you want to to extract uh, from the from from the data and um, I mm, I think about it from from a different perspective than I usually see that I think. Uh, I think about it. Uh, what what is the source of the data? And the source of the data is always uh, in the communication uh, between biologists, bioinformaticians, or experimental people, right? And analysis uh, analysis people. I think it is a, some sort of uh, as a conflict, as a hidden war between bioinformaticians and biologists, uh, because. Um, by informaticians, they uh, they uh, don't see the full immunobiological picture, right? The full landscape of what's going on uh, in terms of immunological processes. And uh, biologists, they sometimes they overlook some um, important parts uh, in the for, for, for the data for the data uh, analysis. I don't know. Additional time points, additional replicas, or or so on, something uh, uh, something like like this, uh, and um, th this is the reason uh, we, for example, um, started to design experiments with our customers, with partners, with collaborators, uh, because we know how to do uh, how to do a um, correct multiomics experiment. And we don't want anyone to lose money and time on on uh, wrong experiments or on you know, some um, uh, well, you know. Uh, so uh, yeah, so in order to fix uh, this war, in order to be a middle middleman, right? Uh, uh, we we fix we fix by by designing exper ex uh, by designing experiments with with people, but still this is. Um, uh, still, it's very interesting to see this um, never-ending war uh, everywhere, uh, even in large uh, communities or large, um, how do you call it, um, not in laboratories, but, I don't know, in consortiums or something, uh, something like that. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, I'm an experimental biologist, and I, yes. I definitely benefit talking to my computational yep. Yep. <laughs> partners very early on. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I was, uh, to be honest, I, I, uh, I think about it a lot. Uh, and I think uh, when I was building uh, the first open source package, TCR, uh, it was the bottleneck I found. It was how many years ago? Eight? Seven. Uh, so I saw that I saw that the data is uh, oh sorry the bottleneck is in the data. So I developed a function that automatically um, parses the input format. So you don't need to uh, specify what is the uh, data format of your uh, of your um, files, right? But and it's 
It's such a simple function, but you won't believe me how many emails, positive emails I got uh, that, okay, thank you so much for exactly this function because, sorry, I can't, I, uh, it's, it's too hard for me to manage all these different formats and files and so on. Uh, right, and um, I think, mm, I, I don't think, that I, I, sometimes I see that, uh, okay, let's improve data analysis skills of biologists or of experimental people, right, and so on. But I don't think this is the way, uh, because those are two completely different domains. I think, I think, um, uh, I think biologists should learn what I called data quality skills. They just, uh, in order to improve their um, productivity, uh, um, they just need to learn more about what what data is, right? To to understand that the data is not something magical or uh, 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 ethereal, right? Uh, that it is a quite specific um, bytes and bits of information with some interesting properties. So, for example, there could be anomalies, there could be full data and not so full data. The data may be uniform or not. So, for example, some of the sam samples uh, may, may uh, lack the number of, um, the huge number of immune receptors, right? Or uh, some samples have a uniform, uh, uniform distribution of um, counts of receptors, right? It's it's very interesting, but bioinformaticians, they usually don't have the, this domain uh, knowledge to understand what's going on. So it's better for biologists to do this very, very first, not a data analysis, it's some sort of data pre-analysis or data quality check, where they could uh, understand this uh, meaning of the meaning of the data and meaning of the, well, meaning of the experimental data, right? and possible possible problems with it or issues what you're saying is that uh, experimental biologists should extend from just being happy that there is no water contamination in a pcr for instance to start looking more into what is the shape of the of the bands that they get out the intensity or whatever the readout might be is this the right interpretation well something like this right but but um, uh, I, I, I want to make sure, right, that so they focus on the biological, bi on bio side of things, right? That, uh, okay, look, statistics and machine learning is extremely hard. So if you, if you feel like it's not for you, it's fine, right? You don't, you don't need to learn different types of distributions or even formulas for these distributions, right? But I think it would be better if uh, people could at least understand why uh, are those distributions there, right? Like, what is the typical distribution uh, of um, immune receptor counts in T-cell uh, receptor repertoires and in B-cell receptor repertoires, right? Those are completely different. B-cell receptor repertoires are much more uniform. And T-cell receptor repertoires follow the... Um, What's called zips uh, distribution, so the mm, the uh, exponential distribution, right? And in, uh, and if they find any anomalies, they could think 
you see, they could think uh, about their uh, sources of these anomalies. Uh, when bioinformaticians, they, mm, they don't have enough uh, domain knowledge to, um, to catch these anomalies, to understand that, okay, look, something is not right, right? So, so I guess if it's like a kind of an example or anecdote is if, if the distribution is off then the two possibilities is there was a technical error or potentially it's a biological reason that is expected, like if there was a clonal expansion, et cetera, or, or a disease sample, like a oncolic a oncology, hematological oncology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, it is. And uh, so, and bio. Biologists at least could ask uh, themselves this question, right? Okay, look, do I really, did I really expect uh, this uh, allele clonality in this sample? Uh, well, yes, because this is a person with an infectious disease and we have a very large expanded clone there, right? And bioinformaticians, a bioinformatician, if they are not very familiar, right, with immune repertoires, and we all know that uh, bioinformaticians are, uh, they are, sc- their, their, um, their time and their, <laughs> their time and their minds are scattered across different laboratories, right? Uh, they they simply again don't have enough time and don't have enough time to learn the immune in the immune repertoire um, domain. And let's be honest, immune repertoires are extremely hard. And what's interesting, it's very interesting to uh, to observe how people from other domains, from for example for, from single cell from transcriptomics domain, try to learn the immune repertoire domain. And uh, despite you know knowledge knowledge of biology despite no, uh, knowledge of uh, well what <laughs> what are different types of cells and so on right they are in my opinion again in my opinion they are uh, a little bit <laughs> confused or maybe sometimes they are shocked by the methods in immune repertoires because I feel like immune repertoires uh, immune repertoire methodology is more um, is, is uh, looks like an ecological studies rather than you know your typical next generation trans- transcriptomics data analysis routine right so it's really a change of mind there would you then say that if the two domains are too separate that this will lead to missed opportunities in terms of, of clinical development mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, oh, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And that's why we, uh, well, connect these, these domains, right? So we have people mm, focused on single cell, we have people focused on immune repertoires, but of course they are well, communicating and so on. And uh, I, I really think that the future for, well, I'm focusing on cell therapies, right? So in the first place, I'm talking about cell therapies. The future is definitely on the intersection between uh, single cell technologies for omics, not immunomics, right? For other omics, uh, particularly transcriptomics, and uh, immune repertoire, uh, immune repertoire research. There is a fantastic uh, publication by Juno Therapeutics called um, Clonal Kinetics Something Something, where they track uh, CAR T cells using immune repertoires and uh, see what are the phenotypes of cells that are, well, persistent, right, that are less, which are less exhausted, and what what is the phenotype of cells 
which are you know less uh, efficient in terms of uh, anti-cancer uh, ther therapeutics, right? This is, uh, I think it's quite old publication from 2017 or, some, or maybe 2018, sorry, I don't remember. Uh, but still, the, I think this is a very nice, uh, very nice um, example of combining different, uh, different fields, right? Because, because what, like, what is the immune, what is the, an immune repertoire based medicine, right? Or therapy, right? So when do you need immune repertoires? You need immune repertoires when your disease um, is linked to a specific receptor or a network of receptors, right? Um, so uh, combine it with uh, transcriptomics information and that's, that's how you get cell therapies, for example. How do you ensure that an AI classifier is based on exactly the thing that we expect it to be. So now we've been talking a bit about data quality and how to how to achieve this. But how do you actually know that the classifier is doing what it's supposed to be doing? So I, I'm asking this because I recently saw um, some example where uh, a cows in a field were classified because of the field. So a cow on a mountaintop ah. was totally misclassified. And how do how, so? How do you how do you how do you actually how do you check for these things? Right, right, right. Uh, that's a that's a great question. It's a continuation of the question uh, related to the data quality, right? And that's I think that's uh, very interesting that um, people think about AI as a, I don't know killer robots or something like this, right? But what's the most important in AI, in my opinion, uh, is the uh, everything except models. In, uh, so the data in the first uh, in the first place. So um, I think. Mm, let me start. Let me start with uh, again non-computer science um, factor that I think uh, plays a huge role. It's about reality versus expectations, uh, and so and uh, it's more on the psychological side of things, right? Because if people don't believe this uh, this closed box that outputs some predictions nobody knows uh, why uh, then uh, you see it's it would be quite hard to uh, to help them understand that okay look it is what we needed right so and because this is about reality versus expectations it means that it is uh, about the um, well faith uh, people put in AI and it about Education of people or understanding how understanding the limitations of uh, machine learning, and of course it's a lot about um, machine learning software design, uh, documentation, and uh, we know that sometimes bioinformatics tools have uh, fantastic documentation, and sometimes uh, it would be great to have more documentation for some bioinformatics tools, right? But if with machine learning it's another layer of complexity maybe yeah, several layers of complexity uh, because of all the different um, uh, all different components uh, which are playing part in the machine learning process input data output data model uh, train test set and so on so of course the ideal uh, the ideal method to validate uh, the output is the experimental validation Right, that uh, you need to grab these cells that you output and check them in some mice model that okay they do 
kill tumor or uh, they do change some expression or something uh, something like that uh, so yeah I, I I'm not sure if I have more specific answer because it's it's really um, it's really um, it's about predicting the unknown uh, right it's about having a, a, a representative uh, a representative sample from a population and well how can we do it if we don't know what the population or population of immune receptors, uh, what it is, right? So, but you see, uh, in immune, immune repertoires, I think uh, there are some fantastic achievements, uh, despite uh, my initial, um, uh, despite my uh, initial skepticism uh, towards it, because I am a machine learning guy, right? I am extremely skeptical about any machine learning. Uh, not very, um, not very good for uh, for sales because I'm always paranoid, right? But very good for the, for results. So uh, yeah, for example, we know that um, immune receptors they are they expand a lot in infectious diseases, right? So this is a fantastic approach to um, to build a oh, fantastic sorry foundation to build a machine learning model for this. Um, uh, for infectious disease. There is some interesting tools uh, called, um, I think, Conga, T-Rex, and some, uh, some others. Uh, and uh, they, I was skeptical first, but when I read uh, publications on Conga, on T-Rex, well, I was quite impressed uh, with, the, with the results. Um, and you see, I am always extremely worried about using machine learning in um, immune repertoires precisely because the potential space of immune, re uh, immune receptors is too large, right? The number of pot uh, possible sequences uh, uh, is, is too big, right? But no, it works. This algori uh, those algorithms work and I think they also, they also had um, experimental validation. So. Okay, it's fantastic. So, in my opinion, in my opinion, it means that um, we really need to push. We really need to develop more algorithms, but for a very specific reason to understand the limitations of this uh, technology, right? Because okay, uh, in infectious diseases uh, it works. Maybe it it maybe it won't work in cancer, right, or in autoimmune diseases because. The nature of processes is so different that um, the model uh, trained on the infectious disease dataset uh, can't be uh, translated, right, transferred to another another domain. So I am all I am all hands uh, for more and more experiments on machine learning in uh, immune repertoires, but with uh, experimental validation and with the goal of understanding the the limits. So you would say any model requires experimental validation. That is the way that you can truly assess if a cow on a mountaintop is actually recognized or not. Yeah. yeah. So in order to uh, in order to uh, make sure that your um, cow detector works fine, right? You need to take it uh, to a completely different place uh, with. The, with the uh, same type, or with the same species of uh, cows, right? But probably with a different landscape.
to truly understand that everything is all right and we can count uh, the cows for, for, for farmers or something like that. Going back to kind of these da- the data itself, um, and I guess continuing the cow analogy of, you know, the, the diversity of images or sequences of TCR and BCR, do you think you, you spoke that about how immunomine is generating their own proprietary repertoires, but there's also a lot of um, consortiums that are trying to uh, right, publicly define the, the massive diversity of, of human re- repertoires. Um, where, where do you see sort of that the field going? Is, is, is it more going to be like a proprietary private set of data information that's going to be distributed among a handful of companies or, or ultimately a, a public data set, kind of like the NCBI for genetics? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Right. So, a, a proprietary data from the business uh, point of view, a proprietary data is a huge competitive advantage. Uh, and well, comp- competitive advantage means that uh, it would take a lot of time and money for someone someone to replicate this exact uh, advantage. Oh, here it's data, right? So, um, if a startup uh, uses a public data, it means right that uh, anyone could use uh, this exact public data. So it became more about the question of uh, speed that you will be able to uh, to hustle and to create a model or maybe find some new targets or something like that and patent it first. Uh, and it became it it becomes a question of um, of uh, you know your own <laughs> charisma and negotiations abilities that you could explain to investors uh, that pharma companies will never take this data and replicate uh, your um, your uh, your uh, your uh, your algorithms right and well probably it won't but what if uh, it will right. So, uh, so I'm not sure. I'm uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I see this as a very major factor, right? That if we go with um, if we go with uh, full public data, we uh, we remove um, there we remove many opportunities for businesses based on gathering data and selling it to others. And well, using this data, right, or gathering this data and using it for internal, internal uh, purposes. So it means that um, it means that uh, the government support or the grant support should be uh, well bigger here to compensate for the lack of these um, business-oriented agents, right? And it it, it means that. Uh, some active people who found themselves entrepreneurs, who found an, um, a soul of entrepreneur inside them, probably they would move uh, to other domains because uh, they don't see any opportunities, uh, opportunities here, right? But you see what's interesting. What, what's, uh, what's interesting here is that um, 
this is uh, this is very interesting question. This is extremely interesting question, and uh, it's very it's, it's very deep because from the positive side, right? What if I'm an aspiring I don't know PhD student that gathered several students where we are machine learning specialists, and we have some bright ideas, right? Uh, well, I think it's fantastic that. Uh, uh, this uh, young student, young specialist, has an access to this public available data uh, that they could, they could use for anything, for experiments, for their diplomas, for well, for getting at least for getting to know the fantastic world of immune repertoires. Uh, right. So, but um, one interesting downside uh, of all all of this uh, picture is that. Um, data scale uh, doesn't mean data quality, right? And um, but data quality, I mean, um, I mean like everything. I mean not only quality of the data, but quality of experiments. So, for example, additional time points, right? Or or um, uh, replicas or, or something something uh, like that and you know maybe more in-depth sequencing of data uh, so for example I remember that uh, I remember quite big fail I think when we realized I think it was I think I worked with the some laboratory on the project or something something like that again many years ago we suddenly realized that uh, we had to um, we had to sort cells to CD4 and CD8. Well, and we didn't, right? But the whole idea was to find differences between uh, sub or uh, immune sub repertoires of CD8 and CD, CD4, right? And now we have a completely uh, useless uh, experiment, right? So the question is who generates this data and, well, how? Because if you have smaller agents, smaller startups, smaller, smaller labs, uh, they have this closed loop of motivation to generate, they generate high quality data for themselves. They build a therapy using, the, 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 uh, they build a platform uh, or a drug using this data, right? They get more money from pharma companies or building a new company, and they have more cap capabilities to generate even more high quality data, right? So this is a closed system, so to speak. But when we go, uh, to the world of larger systems, I think, um, uh, well, it, 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 it becomes quite hard, right? So you have many stakeholders, you need to clearly understand what is the data for, or maybe at least, you know, understand some opportunities uh, of, this, uh, of this data, right? And again, especially in immune repertoires. So, um, uh, so, yeah, so for example, I really think that probably we should look uh, in the direction of uh, combining single cell and immune repertoires. So it's in uh, combining transcriptomics and immune repertoire data uh, together because the amount of information you get from it is uh, absolutely crazy, right? And with well, traditional immune repertoires, with bulk immune repertoires, I'm not sure, like... Uh, whether you could easily combine it with a separate single cell transcriptomics if you if you want if you want to. One last question. Um, so looking into the future, 
what area, you know, diagnostics, therapeutics, cell therapies, or or specific disease do you envision um, air sequencing to immediately benefit um, human health? Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you. Thank you for a for a tricky question, <laughs> and it's it's also it's a bit tricky for me because I don't like to be an expert um, because uh, I like uh, well I like to be a person who who have who have some you know strategic bets right so uh, and uh, I definitely see uh, I definitely have a strategic bet on uh, anything related to monitoring monitoring tumor progression or by mark or uh, markers of t- uh, resistant to, to of tumors or uh, p- uh, maybe patient certification and uh, and there is also biomarkers for I think um, for leukemia no sorry I don't remember again it's an- another uh, too many papers right there is a biomarkers um, that measures uh, that w- which measure a diversity of diversity of tumor infiltrating uh, receptors, right? And they use it for again patient certification and so on. So we already have this amazing application of immune repertoires in um, a, in um, in cancer in in mo- in monitoring in uh, in biomarkers, right? So, but f- for the for the future, for the not for the now, but for the for the future, I I yeah, I do have a strategic bet of on um, combining immune receptor immune repertoires and single cell transcriptomics for cell uh, for cell therapies. And I think I think um, it's interesting. I think I saw a paper uh, from well adaptive immune uh, receptor repertoire community on using bulk immune receptors versus single cell immune receptors and i think uh we don't agree uh on the um potential <laughs> of um, single cell immune 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 receptors but i'm honestly i'm uh, very um, i'm very excited about uh combining different uh different types of information because you because in this case it's not one to plus one, one plus one equals two. It's one times one. Well, it not equals one, right? It equals I don't know ten. Uh, yeah. So uh, so yeah, I'm not sure about infectious diseases. Well, there there is, but I'm mm, I I see again. I I mentioned this machine learning publication and so on, right? But I'm more excited uh, about the cancer and um, autoimmune. This brings us to the end of the ninth episode of On Air, the podcast of the Air community with special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. Please go to the website antibodysociety.org to get more information about our sponsors. If you have any comments or questions, drop us a line at on air at aircommunity.org or tweet using the hashtag on air with two R's. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Vadim. Thank you. Thank you, Ching. Thank you so much for your, for your uh, tri- tricky and complex questions. <laughs> Always. Uh, we will return in one month's time with more thoughts on the clinical use of air sequencing. 
the last seminar of this year of the Eye Receptor Seminar Series will be with Katharina and Keller at Frankfurt Cancer Institute in Germany. That's on November 24th. All links and contact information are in the show notes. This podcast is edited by Abdul Aziz of the comedy podcast Spout Lore. Thank you for listening to